And I ask right now that we open our hearts to each other to start feeling, feeling into the heart center. Feel it begin to warm and kindle with connection. Connection in that plugging into the oversoul or the gestalt of our group. And loving, infinite creator, you are love itself. You are relationship itself. You are reality. Reality is this mystery of union and unity of all things. As the law of one says, all things, all entities seek and become one. And in this seeking and in this wanting, many, many, many different experiences do you get to have through your creation? And we are you having this experience. This is the glory of being incarnated here is that through us, you experience yourself and we are you experiencing these moments. And today we're going to be experiencing a little bit of a presentation on what happens in the astral plane and what we call near-death experiences. So we thank you for Troy's guidance. We ask that you bless him and open our hearts as we are present to his teaching. Amen. All right. The occasion for my putting together this talk was a woman uh, from a church in McKinney and um, her mentor, uh, a former spiritual, uh, spiritual directee of mine, who is also a psychologist, who um, they kind of got together and she got this uh, great idea of, of creating a educational format for churches and spiritual ministries and spiritual people to think about trauma uh, from a spiritual standpoint. And she has uh, been able to get a lot of speakers to, to, to sign on. This is gonna be an online uh, presentation that's gonna be available for a number of years probably. And uh, will be subscribable uh, online, probably starting in May or June. Uh, I, I linked the link in our uh, general information uh, section of Slack. So you can look to see what this is about. And if you go to the speakers, you'll see my pretty face. How about that? Anyway, so what I have uh, chosen to do is speak about the metaphysics of trauma. Uh, I'm speaking to a group that's not everybody's going to know about near-death experiences. And so in some ways, this is going to sound like a primer for this group. 
but uh, you'll have to sort of go with that flow and realize that not everybody knows what you all know. So uh, metaphysics is a branch of philosophy that deals with first principles, especially being and knowing. The philosophical study of the nature of reality concerned with such questions as the existence of God, the etheric world, and the afterlife. So research from near-death experiencers sheds light on these realms beyond physics, so metaphysics, if you would. And uh, it affirms that there is an afterlife or an etheric realm where consciousness continues after death. It provides perspectives on life and the challenges of suffering within life. And we are shown that the afterlife realm is a realm outside of time and not just a continuation of time as we know it. We are shown that consciousness continues in circumstances that are tailored to each individual's need. There is therefore not just one form of heaven or hell. It depends on our individual need for growth and development. God is all about growing and developing. From the perspective of outside of time, our trials and traumas are perceived as meaningful opportunities to grow and to develop. They are opportunities that we often carefully plan in advance from our pre-birth state so as to achieve maximal use of our time on earth. So let's look at some of the research that has shown this. We're not gonna mainly be looking at research, but uh, I just wanna introduce you to a few things. For a decade, Kenneth Ring, a psychology professor and researcher at the University of Connecticut has looked into the question of through the near-death experiences of others. Dr. Ring talked with hundreds of people between the ages of 18 and 84 who have come close to physical death. And his books, Life at Death and Heading Toward Omega, both deal with near-death experiences and how they change people's lives. I've got a three-minute clip here that gives you a sense of the kind of person Dr. Ring is and the nature of some of okay, his findings. Here's so Dr. Ring. Now share the, the most screen. remarkable aspects of the near-death experience, and it's one that's not really given the amount of attention that it should. Obviously, many people know about the light, they know about the out-of-body experience, but the thing that really is, I think, important about the near-death experience and in, in regard to the life review phenomenon is it isn't just a life review. It's a reliving of your life. And when people describe this, not it's not always done in this way, but when people describe the full experience, it's every single act that you have done, every single thought that you have thought, every single word that you have spoken suddenly all of this is back with you you have uh, you have you are running through it again and as you say you see and you experience the effects of these acts these thoughts and these words of other people let me just give you one brief example to illustrate this i have a friend who had a, uh, who when growing up was kind of a uh, a roughneck he had, had a hot temper and he was always getting into scrapes and one day he was driving in his truck through the suburb in the town where he lived and he almost hit a pedestrian and he got very aggravated as a pedestrian and he was a very big physical guy still is and uh, a fight ensued and he punched this guy out and left him unconscious on the pavement got back into his truck and roared off 15 years later this guy has a near-death experience 
Oddly enough, it was caused by, by an accident in regard to his own truck at that time. But in any event, he has a near-death experience. And during the near-death experience, he has a life review. And in his life review, this particular scene where, of the fight takes place again, comes up in his life review. And he said that, as many people do, he, had, he kind of experienced this from a dual aspect. There was a part of him that was almost as if he were high up in a building, looking through a window and seeing the fight below. But at the same time he was observing the fight like a spectator, he found himself in the fight, except this time he found himself in the role of the other person. And he felt all 32 blows that he had rained on this person originally 15 years ago, now being inflicted upon himself. He felt his teeth cracking. He felt the blood in his teeth. He felt everything that this other person must have felt at that particular time. It was a complete role reversal, an empathic uh, life review experience. And this is the sort of thing that many people report. And when they report these kinds of experiences, they realize that in our life, we are the very people that we hurt. We are the very people that we help to feel good. And we experience these actions as though done to ourselves in the life review. So that when people start talking about the, the golden rule in the context of the near-death experience, the golden rule is not just a precept for moral conduct, it's the way it works. And you experience this during the life review, and you learn that lesson in a very forcible way as a result of going through this kind of experience. And that's why when people have NDEs, they change as much as they do, because if, can, if you can even imagine what it must be like to go through your entire life and see everything that you've ever done without judgment, but, but from a kind of almost omniscient point of view with regard to the effects of those actions and see what your actions do to other people it's a heavy kind of lesson and you're not you're not some it, it's something that that stays with you and it informs your conduct for you know for the time after your near-death experience so it does give us a lot to think about and that's why i say in my book lessons from the light the near-death experience isn't given just to those who have the experience it's given to all of us to learn from because all of us can profit by the lessons that near-death experiences learn in the course of the life review or other aspects of their experience. And we can grow from these lessons. We can apply these lessons into our daily life. So the National Institutes of Health website cites research by Jeffrey Long, MD, which uh, demonstrates the reality of ND. So Roger suggested this technique. So I said I would get to the technique. He said, the next time you find yourself embroiled in an argument with someone that's contentious and uncomfortable, say, and I apologize, I should have shut that down better. Okay, so the purpose of showing Dr. Ring was uh, kind of to, to give the people unfamiliar with the NDE experience the idea that have the golden rule is one of the things that that comes forth from the NDE experience. And I hoped it was gonna be kind of familiar ground with them. And so these are eight points that the National Institutes of Health cite that are, are pretty well established in the NDE literature. One is that lucid organized experiences occur while people are unconscious, comatose, or clinically dead. Two is that people see ongoing events from a location apart from the physical body while they're unconscious. Three, near-death experiences happen with vision occurring in blind persons. This vision is often supernormal in intensity. 
Four, NDEs occur under general anesthesia, sometimes leaving the experiencers with verifiable information that they should not, they, they should not have been able to know, but they know anyway because they see these things out of body. Six, uh, children without cultural preconditions often have NDEs that match adult experiences. Seven, cross-cultural NDEs are strikingly similar to all other NDEs. And eight, the after effects of two groups experiencing cardiac arrest were assessed two and eight years after the cardiac arrests. The group of cardiac arrest survivors with NDE were statistically more likely to have a reduced fear of death, increased belief in life after death, and an interest, heightened interest in meaning of life and acceptance of others, and were more loving and empathic. So these are the kinds of data that come forth from the researchers and validate that the stories that individuals tell are more than just a dismissible report of an individual. Now, one story that comes out of that I, I particularly found compelling is, is the story of uh, Natalie Sudman. And in her NDE, Natalie speaks to a group of beings to which, from which she downloads information. This reminds us that heavenly beings take an interest in our experience. Like it says in 1 Peter, it was revealed to the group of angels that they were serving not just themselves, but you, things into which angels long to look. So we're, we're seeing in this story an example of that. This is the story of Natalie Sudman. I was an employee of the Corps of Engineers and I was managing construction contracts. I was handling uh, contracts worth millions and millions of dollars. Um, we did everything from water treatment plants, medical facilities, roads to electrical substations, all kinds of projects. On November 24th, about a year and a half after I arrived in Iraq, four colleagues and I were traveling outside the wire visiting some of these construction sites. We had been to four water treatment plants and a road, and we were on our way back to base when the vehicle that I was traveling in was hit with the roadside bomb. We, when we traveled off base, we traveled in convoys, armed convoys. So in this case, because there were four of us, Corps of Engineers people, we were in a four vehicle convoy. We had a front vehicle, the lead vehicle that had two guards in it. The second truck had my two, uh, two of my other colleagues in it with two guards. My truck, I, I was in it with a colleague of mine and two guards, and then we had a gun truck with three men. And because this province had already been turned over to Iraqi governance, we also had an Iraqi police escort. So we had quite a few people on the road. So um, when the bomb went off under the vehicle, or maybe just before that, that bomb detonated, I left my body. It was an instantaneous shift that I called blinking. It was that quick. I was in the truck, head on hand, kind of half asleep, and then I was not. What I, where I found myself, I was standing on a, sta a sort of stage and all around me were arrayed thousands of beings. 
And they appeared to me, these beings appeared to me to be made of white light. They were wearing long, dark robes. They looked like human forms. And I looked like myself. Um, I was in a human form. I, I appeared to be sort of shimmery, made of light. I was, but I was in my fatigues, bloody ripped up fatigues, although I was not injured. I knew exactly where I was and I knew exactly what I was doing. There was absolutely no hesitation. There was no confusion or displacement. I knew exactly what I was and I knew exactly what I was doing. And what I was doing was downloading information to these thousands of beings. And I was, this, it, it was like making dense packets of information available to these beings. I, I used my attention and intention. And this was, I mean, I didn't think about what I was doing. This is sort of unpacking it from later on, but um, I would put my attention on this information and then with my intention, make it available to these thousands of beings. The information that I was downloading, it was enormous and it was very dense. It could be described as broadly cultural. And I call it cultural in the sense that it, it went from everything, every layer from interpersonal interactions all the way up to um, having to do with broad energy flows that shape and create cultures, not only here in the physical world, but across time and space into other non-physical realities as well. When I was finished downloading this information, I communicated to these beings that I was done. I was tired. I didn't have any interest in going back into my physical body. I, was, I wasn't interested in the physical world at all. And this decision was accepted. It was an assumption. It was known that this decision was entirely mine and that whatever that decision was, it would be respected. These beings and I existed in a state of mutual respect, personal responsibility, and cooperative creation. They accepted my decision. However, they communicated to me that they would appreciate it if I would return to my body. They conveyed to me that my particular skills with energy would be useful at this time in the physical world. And they made a few suggestions of ways that I could put those skills to use. And these suggestions and explorations were things that I had not thought of before. So they reignited my interest in returning to the physical world. So not unlike when that friend called me up and said, hey, you wanna go to Iraq? And I said, okay. <laughs> These guys said, hey, you want to go back and do this? And I said, okay. <laughs> so I guess leaping before looking isn't just a trait of my physical world personality. <laughs> so we're going to watch about 20 minutes of, of this speech because it's such a rich one. And she does such a nice job of, of explaining these otherworldly experiences that are so different from our everyday life. Um, returning now to her, her story. Thought 
imagined, experienced, dreamed, or created was recognized to be valuable. To you, yourself, and to everyone else, to all that exists. Imagine that no matter what you do or how you express yourself, you belong and are valued. This is true. What was known to me, what was so basic as to be assumed was just that, that we are each intrinsically valuable and everything we experience matters, not just to ourselves, but to each other and to, and to all that is. I use the phrase all that is instead of God, source, universe, whatever. A lot of those words have just personal connotations that limit um, limit my ideas. And so when I say all that is, it includes all that is. So the, if I, that's the term that I'll be using. My experience is that we're always within and expressions of all that is, which is a beautiful force of infinitely curious and creative energy and awareness. How can we be anything but perfect? We are all that is, just as much as it is us. We are created by it, it creates us. We participate in it, it participates in us. We extend it and it extends us. We are each individual expressions of the single infinite awareness. We are one and we are each perfect exactly as we are. We're so used to thinking in terms of hierarchies. The healer is more important than the addict. The teacher is more important than the arms dealer. These hierarchies of value are not real. I don't care how dull or weird or messed up we think our lives are here in the physical world. I can assure you that all of us are having a valuable experience. And I don't care how special we think we are. We, we are each uniquely special, every single one of us. Our experience extends and enhances everything that exists. We are each infinitely creative beings having an amazing experience just by being here. From the perspective out of body, it was understood that it takes some skill to even exist in the physical body, in the physical world. It takes a skill of focus to maintain consciousness within a physical body, and then to participate in a collective, cooperative, creative experience of being in this physical world. So we're all amazing. We're all jet pilots flying 50 feet off the deck, upside down. <laughs> we are very cool. <laughs> Just So have you thought of yourself as that jet pilot? I thought that was a great phrase. And uh, uh, I also heard a lot of law of one in, in her description of that metaphysics, didn't you? I thought she ex expressed it so beautifully. Uh, continuing, here we go. And during this wander down memory lane, 
I had no interest in consequences in terms of sin or karma or any, any of those kinds of ideas. I paid no attention to whether I'd been good or evil, kind or mean, smart or stupid. <laughs> there wasn't any judgment like that. There was only a personal evaluation based on my own interests and curiosity. And what I was paying attention to, these personal interests focused down to three things. Number one, whether, whether this or that action or thought was, had been particularly surprising in its effects. Even my human personality is drawn to odd juxtapositions and unexpected effects. So it's, it's fascinating when something leads to something that I had never imagined. So that was number one. Number two, whether this or that event, thought or belief had been particularly creative in its expression. Did I do or think something in a new way, leading again to something that I had never imagined? And my third criteria that I was evaluating things on was, was it fun? The conventional idea of fun has to do with ease, laughter, joy, sunny beaches, margaritas, right? <laughs> my idea of fun was much broader than this. My definition of fun had to do with whether something was surprising, adventurous, whether it pushed my boundaries, whether it stretched me so that I learned or gained more from it than I had expected. I was interested in what I learned, how I had expanded my creative potential and what the effects of that creative potential were on a very broad scale. I also knew, I knew so deeply that it was assumed that I knew and could actually see that thoughts create reality. This is this reality. Our beliefs, thoughts, and imaginations are the creative force of the world. Our thoughts literally individual experiences, manifestations, and the collective reality that we participate in. Even I sometimes go, I did not create this. I did not create this in my life. <laughs> but, and I don't really have time to go into this in detail, but creating our own reality, people always have a lot of questions about this. So I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say a little bit more about it. As a whole self, who remember, the whole self has the broader and more complete view of things than our human minds do. Our whole self may choose to experience something that our human minds are not going to be thrilled with. This is possible. Our human minds, littered with cultural beliefs, judge those experiences. I'm sick, in pain, hurt, struggling, because I'm weak, I'm a victim of circumstance, I'm being punished. Most of us are taught that bad things don't happen to good people. This is not true. It's based on a narrow human perspective that good and bad exist. Hard things happen to everyone. 
The fun is in how we handle those things. It's possible to reframe our perspective to look for the value in anything that we experience. And I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more later. On a more day-to-day -day level of creating our realities, our conscious minds co-create with our whole selves and others. And our human culture beliefs can get in the way of what we think we want to create. So say I wanna be rich, I may strive for it. I, I may believe that that's what I really want. I really do want to be rich. But if I'm simultaneously holding conscious or unconscious beliefs that rich people are greedy, mean, terrible people who will never get through the eye of that needle into heaven, I'm not going to let myself become rich because then I would be greedy, mean, terrible, and I would never get through the eye of that needle into heaven. So I call these contrary beliefs, and we all hold beliefs that compete with each other. QHHT people probably really have had a lot of experience with that. Another example of how we limit ourselves, I may say that I wanna be rich, but I may scoff at small amounts of money. You know, about five bucks, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> this is not an invitation to abundance. Gratitude for whatever we already have. Recognizing the value in whatever we already have is an invitation to more and it's an invitation to something better. All that is, is infinitely abundant. Judgment has no place in our creative potential. Everything we create has value. The trick is just practice, learning to look for the gifts in, within any experience and to be willing to be shown the value. So that's my Cliff Notes version of creating our own reality. <laughs> when I was finished sauntering through my life to date, I blinked back to the gathering of light beings and we discussed in more detail some of the things that I had agreed to do for them and some of the things that I wanted to do for myself as well. And then I, when we were finished discussing these things, I blinked to what I call the healing environment. In this healing environment, I was with two other beings. One of these beings was like an old buddy, really good friend. And the other one was uh, almost like observing us or learning from us or something, not too involved in what we were doing. In this environment, it was as if we were hovering above the scene of the blown up truck and the desert below. And uh, it was like we were looking down from maybe a 45 degree angle from about a hundred feet up in the air. And from this vantage point, we could, we could see the truck, we could see the desert. We could also see my body in the truck. And we could see that body as a physical body and we could also see it as a matrix of energy or an organization of energy. And from that energy matrix perspective, we began to play around with healing my body. We would do the equivalent of waving a hand, setting specific injuries in the body. And as soon as we did that, we would see a sort of holographic projection of the future of how that injured, how that set of injuries would, would shape the future. And from that perspective of expanded awareness, none of these injuries were dire or terrible. In fact, they were quite funny to us. 
from that perspective, it was known and assumed that the physical experience is a temporary creative exploration, that the real being, our whole selves, are eternal and can't be injured. So whatever would be experienced within that physical body would just be interesting and even fun. So we were goofing around for quite a while setting these injuries. We would wave a hand and we'd sever my right hand. And we'd fall over ourselves laughing at this future that unfolded, me trying to learn to do everything with my left hand. We would wave a hand and the shrapnel that's in my head, we'd move it back a few inches so that I had cognitive difficulties. And we thought that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, obviously, these things are not funny once you're in the physical body, right? <laughs> it, it's absolutely essential to adopt that expanded awareness to understand this humor. It was like planning a movie. You can't hurt the actors, so it doesn't matter what horrors you put them through. It's not real. It's just a movie. So that would be the equivalent to the perspective that we had from this environment. It, let's make a good story. <laughs> so eventually we did quit fooling around. So Natalie then uses herself as an example, suggesting that the person who built the bomb that blew her up in Iraq may have done it, done so at her own request. The bomber may have agreed because he wanted to experience what it was like to be chased, arrested, detained, or killed for the violence he visited on others. She continues by saying that even Though soul agreements may exist for actions we may perceive to be evil, doesn't mean we should condone them on the physical level of existence. Our system of judging good and evil is appropriate for our level of reality. In a higher level of reality, however, these experiences may be perceived as a catalyst for growth, greater experience, or change. And so Natalie brings up a really important point that religions and spiritual beliefs tend to get wrong. We like to assume that good things will happen to us in life if we behaved properly, treated others with respect, and generally were good people. Likewise, bad or evil people will eventually get what's coming to them. The truth is that we all have individual lessons that we have chosen to learn through various experiences that we agree to participate in. Additionally, what we consider a negative experience here on earth might have a positive outcome later on, which casts the entire experience in a new light. Although it's tempting to look at someone with a lot of difficulties in life and assume that they've done something wrong to deserve it, consider that they might be just a strong enough spirit to handle the challenges and therefore choose to learn lessons through adversity that we are not yet ready for. The scripture most closely supporting this view is Romans 8, 28, which says, we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the fact that Jesus had a planned journey of terrible suffering and that our journeys are often called to be parallel to his journey, it stands to reason that some of us will be called to suffer in a planned, non-random manner, just like described by Natalie Suderman, Jesus, and other people with NDEs. So I make my point to this um, audience, and I'm not going to belabor you with all the points. It, it's sort of obvious to our, to our group, but I thought I'd, at this point, open, uh, open our visit to discussion. And if any of you are finding yourself reacting angrily to this idea or sympathetically, or uh, I'm just really curious to, to hear what everybody's thinking. So unmute yourself and chime in. Wave a hand and I'll call on you. Yeah, Fred. What, what was the name of Natalie's? Did she wrote a book? Did she? Yes. Uh, it's I've, I've got it. It's called, um, I can't remember. Um, but she did write a book. You can look her up on. It was, I, and I'm, because I was, I came across a book last week or two weeks ago that I was reading on some person that, uh, same kind of situation was in Iraq, Iraq and they had an NDE and they're explaining it and they use the same terminology blink. But I thought it was a guy that was writing it. And so I was like, oh, let me do it. And I'm trying to go back and try to find that book now. And uh, yeah. yeah I've, re I've read her book. It's quite good, actually. Yeah. Very cool. I'll resonate. Loving this. Okay. Application of impossible things, says Serac. That's it. Thank you, Serac. That was the book, Application of Impossible Things. Yeah. I read the first part of it and then I have to go pick someone up for the Uber. So I didn't get to that stuff. Oh, so you've got the book then, huh? I Well, I have a thing and I don't know if anybody is familiar with this, but it's kind of like Audible. It's called Scribd or Scribd for some other people, but it's S-C-R-I-B-D. And it's like an $8 a month audio book club. All right. But it's like Audible, you can only listen to one book at a time. Mm -hmm. This one, you, you could just as many as you want. So uh, I found it on there. And so it's a great, great study, great finding. Anybody's an audible learner, I'm an audible learner. So okay. script. Any other reactions? One of my attractions to this is, uh, I think many of you know that I treated a group of uh, people with satanic ritual abuse and that's sort of like evil defined <laughs> is, is uh, to be uh, tortured by the satanists and um uh tried purposely tried to be made into multiple personalities so that they can ma manipulate you better and uh this is what what they were doing to their own children and the children of others and um, so i was trying to get these people through these horrors that they they suffered and it was pretty unpleasant some of it uh fascinating at, at the same time but um but it was a challenge to 
to deal with this. And I had a, a lady who um, had a prophetic gift. And um, if any, she had a consciousness like no others because she, in, in the very light trance, this God voice would come out of her and, and speak as if it was the Lord God uh, uh, about with authority about the patient or different things uh, in her life. Mainly that's what we were dealing with. And um, I, I tested this a variety of different ways. And I basically concluded that, yeah, that's kind of who it is. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of got a God voice coming out of this lady. And uh, uh, I did challenge that voice on one occasion to justify itself for why it allowed such suffering in this poor lady. And um, it really never would. It, uh, it made no apologies. And it didn't, didn't teach me about uh, pre-birth planning or anything, but it, it basically wouldn't apologize. Sharon just gotta, gotta deal with this, you know? So. Roy, I have a quick question. Sure. Um, I was tracking with everything she was saying. My internet um, began having network difficulties. She was telling the story about when her higher self was interacting with the entities. And then she said that she was rolling around laughing with them, but I, my internet cut out right then. They were, so they were laughing uh, or, and like kind of jovially playing with each other, but it, I couldn't tell if they were laughing at the situation she was in or the they, maybe the they, they laughed about these various scenarios they would play out with different injuries in her body so she would have a, a a worse head injury and they would see what her life would be like with that and they would laugh about it and or they cut off her left hand and see what her life would be like with no with no right hand and they would laugh about that and so it was that was what they were doing in a in a hypothetical kind of situations because you can do that in 3d uh, on the other side, apparently. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You were asking if there was any, any jarring parts of that. <laughs> That's what I assumed she happened when my internet came back in, but yeah, that was a little jarring just to, just to tap into how in the, in the, in the spirit world, in that realm, I guess you'd call it the astral realm. Is that correct? Is that what you would call it? Sure. How, just how different they kind of interact with um, those situations. I just finished a book. I just finished uh, Journey of Souls written by Michael Newton, Michael a, few, Newton. a few days ago. And um, yeah, that hearing the different examples he gave of just the infinite intelligence that these souls are given to kind of map these lives out, it really does change the way that we interact with situations that we find ourselves in. And how our how our thoughts create the reality that we navigate as we go through these situations, all while learning lessons under these situations that our souls deem necessary for our evolution. But the the laughing was a little jarring to me. The advice I gave this audience was that you don't use this information to tell 
people who are suffering. Right. Yeah. You don't you don't talk to them about oh you planned this all in advance. Uh, that is the absolute wrong thing to do. Uh, you be with them at the level they're at. So they're they're suffering. You you so you tune into the suffering. You empathize with it. You create a safe space. You grieve with those who grieve, and you mourn with those who mourn, and you do all the things that we do as therapists, you know, or or caring people on this planet, because that's the level we're at. We're not at these lofty uh, sixth density levels. And, uh, but I think having these perspectives uh, does settle you down a bit and allows you to kind of tune in better in in a sense of, because you don't, you're not all tense that, oh, ain't this awful, she's a horrible, uh, she or he is a horrible victim and uh, I need to go rescue them. And it, it, it kind of gets you out of that, that victim rescuer mentality that uh, is so detrimental when doing psychotherapy or, or grief work or, or whatever. So that, that's what, that was the practicality I saw of, of this perspective. Yeah. The, uh, one, I think it's one of the first books that I had read on, uh, well, actually, this wasn't even a near-death experience. This was uh, a brother who had passed on. It was The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. Oh, had, I love that book. I read it three times, yeah. at least twice, maybe three. I'm not sure. Yeah, I read that one, and then I, I wish I could remember the title of the other one. Uh, it'll come to me. And uh, Sorry, always- could you say the name of that book again? The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. It's a short, sweet book, easy read. Um, and he he did he did um, pass. And uh, it's a story written by his sister from getting communications from him. But uh, he describes the afterlife um, very very differently. And then, if I remember the other book title that I read, um, it was also an excellent book. And then listening to various interviews, and I had heard of Natalie, and I the name sounded so familiar. I think I have listened or read something a little bit about her. Um, what I'm finding interesting is is the the stories are there's something similar about them, but then the experiences of what's shared back are, are somewhat very very different, and. Uh, I kind of found the, 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 when she talked about laughing, the laughing piece, I thought that was, I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> so that was new. But yeah, it's, uh, well, for one thing for sure, there's a, an afterlife and, 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 and it sounds, uh, it just sounds like opening one a door and walk, I don't know, it just sounds like it's transparent so to speak it's all the same stream from from pre-birth to birth to living our lives to death and whatever could cycle right around again sounds like it's just this same same thing of flow i don't know thank you for that go ahead fred Something interesting to me that I'm just this Friday, um, a new movie is coming out called Everything Everywhere All at Once. 
right? And it's, uh, you know, a very interesting movie. I suggest you guys maybe check out the, the preview on YouTube or whatever. But it's the idea of this one lady that she goes for some particular way. She ends up living all of these different lives and is realizing that everything everywhere is happening all at once. And so they do it through a narrative and it's just brilliant and beautiful, all of that. Then like I look at the Marvel multiverse type thing that's going on. And I guess what I'm my what my I'm getting to or my question is, isn't it interesting that in media, like in the movies, in art, I guess that's a better way to say it, we are trying to tell that story. We are trying to get there, trying to understand it. Or is it, you know, that it's trying to get into a mainstream to, to say, yeah, this is, this is interesting and uh, this is a thing. So the name of the movie, someone just asked, again, it's called, uh, Eduardo, it's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. <laughs> what a freaking cool name. So <laughs> name my pet that right now. So anyway, I just thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Diana. My mind is going in like several directions at once. Um, so bear with me. I don't get the sense from the raw material anyway, for those of us who trust that material, that the higher self plans for horrible, difficult things to happen to someone. Um, you know, the most what Rob really says about that is the higher self guides when it's requested, helps when it's requested and otherwise respects the free will of the entity. I do get the sense from the raw material and from other similar um, texts that we co-create with, if we are positively oriented entities, positively polarizing entities, entities who are open to receiving the guidance of our higher selves rather than separating ourselves from our guidance system as a negative entity would do. We co-create our, our lives, right? Our incarnations, meaning that the higher self respects our free will, but we can reach for that guidance. And from the perspective of the level of consciousness that corresponds to that incarnation or to the previous incarnation, if you will, like from a third density level of consciousness, going back into another third density body, we can seek the guidance of our higher selves and we can decide what kind of details we want to build into our, our incarnation to a point. Cause Ra says that like, for example, we may pack our bags with certain limitations, right? Um, we may have a physical limitation or something that will kick in as a way to guide us toward the work that we want to do. If we're sort of, uh, missing the point as, as life goes by, if we're not noticing the catalyst of the mind, the opportunities that come to us to evolve, then suddenly we may find that a physical disability kicks in and suddenly we're wheelchair bound. And this means we have to use our, our thoughts and our consciousness more than our bodies to accomplish things in the world or something like that. But free will is always at play. Like that's paramount. So I don't think that we specifically would plan and make an agreement like, hey, you're going to blow me up in a tank uh, when I'm 
35 years old or something. I think it's more like I'm going to incarnate into this soul group and I'm going to encounter these people in my lives whose distortions are such that they may have a tendency to offer me a type of catalyst of this particular desired energetic configuration that may manifest looking all different ways, but having that same energetic undercurrent that gives us the experience that we want. So it may be the, it may be that we want to have the codependent experience and that may be an alcoholic parent. It may be an abusive parent. It may be a parent with um, mental health issues or something like that. But I don't, I don't personally believe that we plan exact circumstances because I think that that would negate the free will aspect. Um, I think it's more like, Hey, I've known this soul for a long time. Higher self is guiding me to seek lessons of wisdom in this next incarnation. And so let me incarnate with this soul who is likely to provide catalysts that will move me toward learning the lessons of wisdom in this incarnation. So that's my first kind of big thought. And my second one, I'll be brief, is we step outside of time when we're dead, right? Here, we're having the experience of the illusion of being within the stream of time. Mm -hmm. Once we're in time space, we can mentally move through time, as this woman was explaining, fast forward, take a look, see what happens, test out different experiments mm -hmm. to choose one. But what's interesting about that is um, even though time space, as Ross says, is still as complex a system of illusions as space time, as the physical manifest world, we seem to be able to understand, I'm sorry, my cat's going insane behind me. We seem to be able to understand that like time is not real. So if we're planning from a perspective that is outside of time, are we really planning or are we just somehow like energetically living into this aspect of the creator's experience that is inevitably going to happen? It's hard to, it's hard to reconcile free will to the concept of timelessness. So that's the other place my mind went was like, yeah, we plan for our next incarnation, but everything everywhere all at once. So I think you ought to take the next class, Deb, uh, Diana. The next class? What do you mean? Next Tuesday night, you take over and, and take it from there because we've oh, run out of time. I'll just say crazy shit for hours. <laughs> <laughs> that can be the name of it. Tip Noah, crazy shit for hours from Diana. <laughs> um. Yeah. I'm done. That's all I wanted to share. Like, yes, free will. No, I don't think we plan for horrible things to happen. I don't think higher self plans for that either. I'm not sure what planning really is. The end. Well, uh, you're, you're muted, Doug. Oh, uh, I was being told that it is time for us to do our Lent, familial Lenten ritual before bed. So we should close it out um noah what is happening next week do you know who's talking or do we have You're somebody starting me mm -hmm. okay or or we could do a follow-up for this if y'all want so okay follow so up. follow up, follow up. I'm, I'm rooting for follow-up yeah this has been pretty interesting
there's there's a lot we can explore. I mean, uh, I was obviously thinking from the law of one perspective too. And so I think that we could probably just jump into that next week too.